and welcome back to the DocSF podcast series, where we showcase just a few of the outstanding speakers from the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco. My name is Dan Kendall, the host of the Digital Health Today podcast, and this DocSF podcast series is brought to you in partnership with the Health Podcast Network. As you know by now, this is the first series of the podcast where we're sharing some of the key insights from the DocSF event that was held in San Francisco in January 2018. I'm once again joined by the conference founder and chair, Dr. Stefano Bini. Welcome, Dr. Bini. Thank you, Dan. So far, we've heard from Topher Gaylord from Under Armour, Dr. Tad Vale, the chair of orthopedic surgery at UCSF. Both those were great talks, and I encourage any listeners who may have missed those to go back and be sure to grab those. You had a number of international visitors, both on stage and in the audience at the 2018 event. And in this episode, we're going to hear from one of them. Dr. Shafi Ahmed traveled across from London, England to give the next talk, and he practices at one of the oldest hospitals in the world. St. Bart's London is about 1,000 years old, and he gave a talk about AR and VR. What were some of the reasons you selected this talk to be included in this DocSF podcast series? This is a great talk. Uh, we're very excited to have uh, Shafi come to DocSF. As you know, he is uh, an alumnus of your own program, Digital Health Today, and uh, actually maybe where I heard of, of him first, and I contacted him to follow. He's a colorectal surgeon at the prestigious and super famous St. Bart's Hospital in London. Uh, he recently curtailed his practice to a degree to focus on Medical Realities, a company he co-founded to really explore what he really beliefs can be done with virtual reality to help sort of transform and democratize uh, surgical education and in the end, surgical care around the world. He's a man on a mission in this respect, this travels a great deal to, to, to preach his, this concept of using uh, augmented reality, virtual reality to optimize care we deliver internationally. And he, while he's focused on general surgery, uh, he and I are talking about what we can do in the orthopedic arena. And he sort of gives us a preface in, in this talk. So uh, let's hear what Shafi has to say to our audience from the DocSF stage. All right. And just a reminder to everyone listening that these complete talks are available in video format as well. So that's the complete talk with the slides, with the Q&A at the end. You can find those on the docsf.health website and just select the option to watch past events in the navigation bar. This is particularly relevant in this episode because Dr. Ahmed has some photos and really some videos from his AR and VR surgery. We removed some of this from this audio-only format, but you don't have to miss it. You can grab them there at the DocSF website. Now, without further ado, let's tune in to Dr. Shafi Ahmed. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Stefano, thank you very much for inviting me. On the fourth kind of occasion, they kept asking and asking. In the end, I relented to come to San Francisco. Uh, thank you very much. Wonderful occasion. Great conference, by the way. Congratulations. And great to be with colleagues and friends in this kind of world that we live in, in med tech and kind of VR. So, yeah, they call me the virtual surgeon. And I'll explain why in a moment as we go through this presentation. Now, as I was flying uh, on the plane over, I was reading a book by a colleague of mine who's just resigned from his post having spent years working in Obst and Gynae. And you can see the reputation of orthopedic surgeons in the UK isn't great, as you can see from this quote. Um, and actually, the last person you want to be speaking to as an orthopedic surgeon is a colorectal surgeon, yes? It means you're in big trouble, generally, that something's gone wrong, the wire's in the wrong place, but thankfully it hasn't happened too many times in my career so far. Um, a bit of history about where I am. So this is the hospital that I kind of work in, and it's Barts, and we've been around for about 900 years. So therefore, we're in a hospital that's been around for a long time, 
trying to move things on. Some of you may know some of our uh, famous surgeons. James Paget was one of them. Uh, Abraham Collies, lots of famous surgeons in Orthopedic Field were actually from St. Bart's Hospital in the back end. The irony, of course, that we're moving on. We're innovating. We're doing things differently in our kind of medical school and our hospital. And one of the things I've been struggling with, and I'll share this with you very quickly, is about how we redesign the future of healthcare. How do we create medical students and how do we create them to think differently in terms of the future tech? And how do they become what I call the connected doctor or the digital doctor? We've got a, we've got a kind of big role here to play, but how do we change the next generation? So I ran the first program uh, last year as a pilot. And this year, we're the first medical school in the world to introduce entrepreneurship, innovation, future tech, into the curriculum for every medical student. That's a big game changer. And we've got a fantastic faculty. Daniel, in fact, came on Tuesday and gave a keynote at our medical school to our medical students to show the case this is the future that we need to redesign. And maybe UCSF needs to do the same thing because you are part of that kind of community. Uh, and our entrepreneurs, our first batch already went to a Dragon's Den, did a pitch, unusual. And the winners in medical school got three month placement at a tech company. This is the kind of doctors we need in the future who are nimble in thought, who are flexible, who can change healthcare and make it more efficient and uh, plausible. Of course, it's change. We think about the past and the kind of way we interact with patients. That's all changing. AI interface, chatbots. We're now looking at telemedicine, teleplatforms, and out there, many influences of where we're going to be in the future and how we're going to connect with doctors in the future. Carl Schwab talks about this fourth industrial revolution, the impact of the changing world and all the kind of technologies together impacting the world. And in medicine, it's more than relevant. All these techs are beginning to come together to merge and become one, and we're changing the face of medical health care. What I talk about a lot of time is about connectivity. I do a lot of global work. And what we'll be helping with is connecting the world in terms of the uh, 3G, 4G, and Wi-Fi connection. This, of course, a Google uh, loop. This is the kind of blues in the air. They're going to give Wi-Fi access. And Puerto Rico was highlighted recently with the hurricane and everything else about how do we connect people. Facebook with a project loom, with the um, uh, project Aquila, with a drone flying at 70,000 feet, uh, using solar panels, giving Wi-Fi access. We're connecting the world. And all of us as doctors, as physicians, as clinicians, we're to think about how do we impact that world in a better way. I've been around for a long time. I'm starting thinking about how do I globalise health? And ARVR is going to be one of the solutions to that problem. There's a pipe now just being placed from North America to Portugal about a month ago. This is going to give, again, high-speed access for our thirst and sort of for ARVR and connectivity. VR is great at the moment. I was a bit worried about a year ago. But now recently, all the big companies coming with their new headsets. Lenovo, Microsoft with tethered headsets, untethered headsets. We've got all these things going on at the moment. And there's huge interest in the world of VR at the moment, which I think we should be using. And this year will be the year of the content, no question. Hardware's been out there. We need to derive the content in healthcare to make it equitable. AR itself is moving on. AR kit came out last year for Apple. That's a game changer. Google have abandoned the Project Tango, put money behind AR Core in competition with AR Kit. Suddenly, AR is going to be mainstream in every phone in every part of the world through Android and iOS. We've all seen, finally, we see a picture of Magic Leap, right? We'll see what happens this year as it comes out. It promises much in terms of mixed reality. So AR, VR, mixed reality are now really in vogue. And this year, we're going to see a huge expansion. I do a lot of global health work. I'm a philanthropist. So I do work around the world and try to raise standards of surgical education and training. 
About three years ago, I sat in the audience at Royal Society of Medicine in London, where they came out with this whole kind of paper around inequalities of health. The first time surgery was highlighted as being a problem. Five billion people, that's two-thirds of the population, we have seven billion people on the planet, do not have access to safe and affordable surgery. We have to train another million surgeons today to make healthcare more fair, and we have to perform about 146 million operations per year just to offer the population of the world a accessible healthcare. These are operations like appendicitis, appendicectomy, cesarean sections, and management of fractures, which causes enormous amount of morbidity and mortality. If we get that right, we'll save many more lives than all the lives combined saved by TB, HIV, etc., etc. So this is a kind of game changer. And equality of health are not unusual. The red marker, as you see, shows the healthcare that's been poorly served. So what do I do? We connected people, we got new devices coming out, what do we do? So AR. So Google asked, could we consider about AR? It came out in 2014. And I did a kind of first operation using Google Glass um, back then. I was a bit perturbed by my teaching at medical school. We sit in the operating theatre every day. We have hundreds of medical students coming in and out. Most on the back of the room, on their phone, on Snapchat, on Facebook, right? They're talking to you, being ignored. And we've thought for hundreds of years, this is okay. They're learning by this process of diffusion and osmosis, just by being in the presence of greatness. And it's true. This is what we've accepted. I said, no, that's not good enough. They are paying a lot of money for the education. How do we teach them better? So we set the Google Glass uh, 2014. We live streamed our operation through my eyes. People on their smartphones around the world could watch it. They could type a message. The message would come up in the glass. I could answer at the same time. In real time, I taught 14,000 people in 118 countries just showing the power of simple connection and simple wearable technology. We created a whole platform around wearables uh, three years ago, and you can access the live feed, you can have a chat box, suddenly connect to the world and teach people on a global scale. It's scaling up education level, it's never been done before. AR itself is moving on. We're now going to be able to plan operations before, uh, peroperatively or intraoperative. Great for orthopedics or great for neurosurgery, where things are more static, more difficult in the abdomen. But we're going to get there. We're going to be able to overlay information on top of patients as we operate. It's great for the interns who can't cannulate ever. They can now see the veins and pop a cannula in straight away. That's the real use of ER, I think. What about social media? Sadly, I have an addiction to social media, like all of us. I'm a bit old for social media, but I've got a sort of caught on to it. Um, Facebook, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter. Why am I mentioning these things? They're powerful mediums. They have an enormous reach. Facebook has 2 billion users on a daily basis. Can you imagine? 2 billion people. Snapchat has 175 million. Twitter has 300 million, as does Instagram. But actually, you know what? They're AR devices. Snapchat was the most powerful AR platform without realizing the overlays, the selfies, the kind of pictures you see. Absolutely. So I've taught people using Facebook in Bangladesh. I taught 10,000 people on a single click on Facebook Live using the AR platform. Snapchat. You must have heard a story about Snapchat. I got spectacles about a year ago. And in fact, what I did with that, I thought, let's see if I can teach a Snapchat operation. Now, most of you in this room don't have Snapchat. You're too old, sadly. <laughs> it's true. 75% of users up to the age of 17 and 25. That's not you, but it's the age of your medical students and trainees. You might as well adjust to their kind of life. So I thought, let's see if I can teach people on Snapchat. I did this last year, November. I think we heard a repair in about half an hour or so using the spectacles and live on Yes, I look stupid. So this is anatomy, anterior spine, symphysis pubis, pubic tubercle. This was a simple hernia operation, nothing difficult. And it went viral. I thought I'd just aim it for a small amount of people. 
typing up the story, it took with it, it went everywhere. And I've been quite fortunate, I've been in most magazines, newspapers and TV around the world. The one I'm most proud of is that I was in Cosmopolitan with my hernia operation. You can't beat that, right? I can retire in peace, having made to Cosmo. And I have famous friends. Ashton Kutcher, yeah, I've said, wow, Ashton Kutcher, on his, on his Facebook page. And, and actually, it wasn't about that, it was about connecting people. Look at the things on the right-hand side. Two million views of that one operation. Nothing difficult. It was simple Snapchat on your story. 100,000 downloads on YouTube in 24 hours. Every time I operate now, and I do a Snapchat operation, augmented reality platform, I push out to my Snapchat 5,000 students I have every time. They engage from all over the world. It's incredible, the reach that you have with young people using a simple platform. We looked at the graphics of that operation back in November, the first one we did, to see how many people were tweeting about this operation in one month. 56 million people were tweeting that operation because it's reaching around the world. So this is the kind of way we can teach people on a global scale. And then one of the days about a few months ago, I said to my audience, because you don't know where they're coming from on Twitter, said, on Snapchat, I said, who are you? Where are you watching it from? I don't know who you are because you're interacting with me. And then one girl replied. They all replied back from all over the world. One really touched me. She said, hi, my name's Ella. I'm watching you. I'm a medical student, third year, and I'm watching you from the Marianas Islands in the Pacific. So where's that? So I Googled it. I was sweeping through Google, Google Maps. Finally found the island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It had 12,500 people. And she was watching it from there, being trained by someone in London. And that's the kind of reach that's quite touching, isn't it? Using a simple kind of AI device. I also did the first world's Twitter operation through NHS. I ran the account for a whole week. I ran the whole NHS account for the health service. And I thought I'd run the whole account and do a live Twitter operation. And I won't show the whole thing, we haven't got time, but if you go into my moments on NHS account, you see how we live tweet an operation and got one million people, public and uh, kind of students, engaging in a new way of, of, of teaching and training. We have to be open. We have to be more, I guess, responsible. I don't think we should keep soldiers mystique and kind of behind closed doors. We need to be more transparent. These are the kind of things that are going to help us in the future. So we talked about kind of telemedicine where we're like remote, Snapchat and Google Glass. What about if you bring the person to you in VR? So we did the world's first 360 operation three years ago. We actually created our own rig of GoPro rigs. We 3D printed a kind of scaffold to get them together. Uh, and we moved that on a few years later. And we did the first VR operation back in 2016. My hospital, Bart South, is the biggest trust in the UK. Yeah, a huge hospital. I persuaded them to buy everyone a headset, a Google Cardboard. We actually broke as a hospital. And that's probably why we're broke, because they bought headsets for every person in the hospital. And in fact, what they did, we did a live stream from the operating theatre at Royal London in 2016. That operation was watched by 55,000 people in 142 countries, and it went viral. Harlem, two years about what creates good learning in VR. It's not about 360, it's about the whole learning environment, which we've now validated over the last couple of years. So please do download it and try it out. VR, of course, has also been showing good in therapy, therapeutic VR. And uh, Brendan Spiegel, who works out uh, in LA, has done a lot of good work around the kind of the therapeutic use of VR. And this is great, this picture showing uh, how you can create a game using a snowman, throwing balls and trying to avoid them, which actually reduce the pain requirement and reduce the requirements of a patient a young child who's undergoing kind of dressing change for burns. So actually, it's simple. We've been shown now, it's been useful in phobias, obsessive compulsive disorders, and many other kind of logical problems. It's now, papers have been produced regularly on the impact of VR. It's taken a few years. 
that some therapeutic VR is becoming vogue and actually is going to be useful in the long term. It's not just about training education. It's been shown to be used in phobias, also in post-traumatic stress disorders. The American military, uh, when they come back from uh, wars and things or from military duty, go through a bout of training in PTSD so that the VR helps them overcome that kind of fear. And of course, pain requirement is going to change with the use of VR in certain situations. It's also becoming um, a standard for training, as we discussed before. You can plan things. Neurosurgery lends itself well in that fold. And of course, Justin Barrard is back in the audience with his great company at the back, which is fantastic, by the way. She'll try nailing something in the, in the kind of tibia and things. Great work. Simulation is going to change. Simulation is going to be in VR and AI. It's going to move on. Current, current, current systems we use for simulation are obsolete. They're archaic. We have machines in our hospital. £100,000 we pay for them. Gathering dust in the corner. No one uses them. They're not fit for purpose, always. So therefore, we've got to move on to a low-cost alternative. And VR offers that kind of opportunity. The thing, of course, about VR is that we've got to replace the CGI with real images. CGI is a bit cartoonish. We're not there yet. And I'll show you in a minute what we're going to do with that. We've also got to create haptic feedback that's relevant, that we'll be able to feel and touch in that space. We haven't quite got that yet. We've got the controllers. They don't give you enough information. That, in the next two to five years, will develop. We get to a stage where we can now use machines like this and gloves like this, which can feel touch, hot, cold, temperature, feel of rough and smooth. Suddenly, we change the way we'll train people in the future. Education will change enormously. All these devices coming together. Undergraduate medicine will change enormously. There'll be no cadavers, okay? There'll be no cadaveric teaching soon. Already, some medical schools in the US, within two or three years, will abandon cadaveric teaching and go on to AR and VR equivalents. Because actually, you know, cadavers are difficult to get hold of, and actually AR and VR offer an alternative to teaching in terms of anatomical knowledge. And these are just some of the examples that we're now seeing coming through the system. Let's go into robotics very quickly. Think, why am I talking about robotics? So, I attend Daniel, we had a conversation about this. 2018 is the year of the robot wars. That's what I call it. Because all the companies now are clamoring to create the surgical robot. Verve, this is the Johnson Johnson stroke Google collaboration with Verily. CMR, Cambridge Medical Robotics from the UK, produced a new smallest robot in the world, very nimble. You've got Transoteric, which has got FDA approval last year, this year, or so last year and implemented in Freud already. This is an augmented reality uh, surgical robot. Intuitive are going to upgrade their system as they go on. And there are others. There's Medtronic and two more from uh, China we haven't heard about. So suddenly, all these augmented kind of platform robotics are coming into general surgery and orthopedics soon. What about this whole social interaction I was talking about at the beginning, this whole doctor-patient relationship changing? VR might be a way of communicating. We need to replace the person with an image that reflects their image, with an avatar maybe. And in this case, you can reflect people's with an inward camera. You can reflect the presence of a person, smiling, feeling, whatever. Suddenly, communication will change in AR and VR. So this is the, this is the ultimate selfie, of course. This is me being videoed, well, actually, uh, shot on the camera, uh, about 104 cameras. These are Nikon cameras creating a photogrammetric image of me. This is how we can replace that horrible kind of CG animation in VR with real images, real capture, so it feels realistic and rather cartoonish. That will change. So I did become the world's first virtual surgeon. That's me, the virtual surgeon. Imagine if you train that person in AI. He moves like me, like in the CGI graphics you see on uh, the, the programs on TV. And suddenly you can interrogate that, and that would become your kind of avatar and teaching role model. 
and it can teach everybody together. That's the kind of thing we're heading towards so in the future. We have now entered the virtual space with my colleagues from around the world to discuss a case uh, which is going on behind me in theatres, get some real-time advice about the case. So um, we'd like to uh, introduce you to the people from around the world. So in front of me, um, tell me about yourself and who are you, where are you watching from? Hey, this is Ian. Uh, I'm here in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. I'm one of the creators of Thrive. Pleasure to be here today. Thank you for joining us from the US. Um, Shailash. Hi, this is Professor Shailesh Srikande. I'm the chief of GI and HPV cancer surgery at the Tata Memorial in Mumbai in India. Thank you very much for joining us on this special occasion. And Hitesh Patel. Hi, I'm Hitesh Patel. I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon and I'm joining you from the London Independent Hospital. So we have four people in four different places across three continents trying to connect together to discuss the case in real time. This is going to change the way we sort of manage our patients and also how we train and teach in the future. So first of all, uh, thanks for joining us everybody. I'm just going to go to the, um, the patient's record. I'm just going to just open up the file. And we'll see, uh, I'll give you a quick discussion. This is the patient who is just over 80 years of age who presented with anemia and was found to have a lesion uh, in the sort of right colon on colonoscopy. That's the pelvic model. We're going to get the scans all out here and then we're just going to just move up to the next scan here and also the endoscopy report. So, um, Professor Shailash, would you mind just talk to me about the case and what your thoughts are about how we should manage this patient? Sure. To me, this looks uh, like a lesion in the right colon. If I see the CT scan image, but of course I also see the colonoscopy image now. Yeah, so we are dealing with an adenocarcinoma. You get the message. Ultimately, when we innovate, when we try to push the boundary in healthcare, we forget one kind of people in this audience. That's the patients. Actually, maybe next year we could have more patient perspective on healthcare in the future. These are the kind of patients that support us in healthcare. We have to drive innovation. Ultimately, it's a kind of a journey we go through with hospitals, with kind of uh, our general public, uh, but also the patients who have to be the most important part of any innovation in healthcare. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Shafi Ahmed. He was also a guest on another podcast I host, the Digital Health Today podcast. You can find that episode on the Digital Health Today website or in your podcast player. He was a guest on episode 19. So we're four episodes into the DocSF podcast series, and I'm curious, what do you think so far? We welcome your input on how we can really make this an effective and useful platform for you. You can get in touch with me directly on email at dan at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Or if you want it to be a little bit shorter, you can also message me at the shorter email address, dan at hpn.health. That email gets to the same place, but you just get to use a lot fewer keystrokes with the shorter and I think cooler domain extension for .health. Once again, that's dan at hpn.health, hpn as in health podcast network, or you can go old school and use healthpodcastnetwork.com, hpn.health, potato, potato, all gets to the same place. Coming up next, we have two guests sharing their perspectives on artificial intelligence, sometimes called augmented intelligence. You won't want to miss it. We'll catch you on the fifth episode of this first series of the DocSF podcast. It's coming up next. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.